0: Hello and welcome to the IntraFish podcast where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood, aquaculture, fisheries, and aquaculture technology news. I am Drew Cherry, editor-in-chief, joined today by John Evans, correspondent in Brazil, John Fiorello, executive editor here in Seattle. And today it's all about shipping and logistics and that puts Mr. John Evans on the hot seat. This week was our shipping and logistics forum. It's something unique we've never, uh, We've never brought together a group of executives quite like this, but over the past two years, as many of our readers and, and many in the industry have experienced, there has been um, just a, a flurry of disruptions, rising costs, difficulty securing space, um, on and on. The COVID pandemic has really upended the the trade flows uh, as we've reported on many, many times. Uh, John in particular. Um, John, you were uh, moderating this event. Um, Tell us a little bit about what we learned. It was a fantastic uh, panel, as I said, and people from a a much broader uh, sector of the the global seafood industry than we normally bring together.
1: We learned a lot, actually, uh, from various different um, aspects that we maybe even weren't expecting, um, starting with... um, and I have to say, um, before before we go any further, that uh, this this uh, webinar now is going to turn into a series of uh, at least six um, uh, separate uh, reports. And uh, starting with uh, getting space and higher higher costs, we knew that um, uh, seafood companies, uh, along with uh, other industries, were paying much higher costs uh, for uh, shipping. But we hadn't really spoken about the the battle to uh, get space. Um, on board ships and the consequences, which my first report uh, next week, hopefully when it comes out, uh, will uh, talk about. Um, then, of course, there's the uh, the current uh, port uh, congestion situation. Uh, I won't give away too much, but it's, the problems in China have been particularly difficult. And Tui um, Barford from the, the Maersk line uh, gave us an update on the latest situation in uh, China United States and uh, Europe, and then from a, uh, an insurance point of view, Michael Lieberman Lever, from FOA uh, and Sun Corporation, uh, he, he, um, he talked about the, uh, the problems in ports, which have uh, been costing companies from an insurance point of view and sort of gave uh, the latest update on uh, insurance uh, costs that companies can, prepare to pay, uh, can be prepared to pay and uh, also look back as to how we got to uh, to where we are um yeah and and also i mean uh, the, the panelists talked about their ability to be able to be able to or not pass on cost to consumers how difficult that is and um, with you know uh, costs appearing out of the blue um, in some cases, um, so yeah, that'll be an, another topic. And then uh, to a Barford again, will be giving his um, his uh, look, gazing into his crystal ball to tell us when he thinks that the um, disruption uh, uh, for the seafood uh, industry and and the rest of the world uh, will come to an end when when things start to normalise. And uh, finally, we'll be having a look at the uh, shipping costs outlook, which uh, I just mentioned, you know, gone through the roof since uh, early 2020.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a really interesting thing to hear, from, uh, to hear from seafood companies that are really in the midst of feeling the pressure on this. Um, we heard um, on our panel, we had Morten Jensen, who is the COO of Whitefish at uh, the Norwegian harvesting and processing uh, group in Sula, uh, and we also heard from Glenn Kleppa, he's the head of procurement at Regal Springs, tilapia producer, and, you know, it, it was it was striking to hear how much their costs had risen over the course of the past two years uh, in moving fish from, uh, from one place to another. You know, uh, I, I don't know if you sense that there was any um, any feeling of uh, of relief based on what they heard from the from the event. Uh, do you think the seafood industry sort of walked away feeling a little bit um, reassured by where things might be headed on uh, just on the shipping and logistics front?
1: I think that they'll, they'll feel a little bit more relieved in terms of where they have an idea when the pain is going to end. But as um, Tui said, he's not a physician or or a doctor, and he can't guarantee that the you know the um, the COVID nineteen pandemic will end on a certain time at a certain date. Um, so yes, it's uh, I think they'd be a little bit more reassured. But uh, you know, as, uh, what what could come into the mix, as he mentioned, is you know the onset of a new COVID variant, which could set us back again. Although. It seems quite a lot of countries, Germany including the United Kingdom, seem to have um moved on and are starting to abandon their uh, their COVID rules. I think Britain is happening fairly shortly and Germany also.
0: Yeah, state by state in the United States as well, we're seeing that. Um you know, it it, it was uh it was also interesting to to hear from uh from Morton and Glenn um, just about the uh, the logistics um, of of getting product uh, to markets in a uh, in a sustainable fashion as well, um, and just kind of the pressure that's uh, been put on on them to increase efficiency, uh, increase sustainability, um, and that was kind of an interesting uh, interesting topic as well that uh, that our sponsor Stora Enso uh, mentioned as well um, is that this pressure on carbon is coming from all, uh, all parts. Uh, it, it's, uh, the pressure on carbon emissions. It's coming onto the, the shipping lines. It's coming onto the, uh, the processing companies, the harvesters and, and, uh, farmers. Um, it's, it's really, that's another major driver, uh, of changes in the supply chain. Correct.
1: That's right. And,
0: uh, you know, they, these
1: higher prices are ex- from you know, the use of greener fuels, at least in the short to medium term, are expected to creep in. So that's another consideration for everybody. As you mentioned, the um, shipping companies themselves and and the seafood uh, firms looking to export. So uh, as to a uh, part mentioned, if we want to be uh, kind to our children and grandchildren in the future, we'll have to take those um, kind of things into account and that will mean higher costs and someone will have to pay them.
0: Right. Right. One of the other things I thought was very interesting was, uh, Tua mentioned, uh, China, uh, and that the COVID restrictions that we've seen kind of really, uh, cracked down, uh, even, even tighter in the beginning of the year that it seems like China's zero tolerance policy, there was nothing in that discussion that indicated that we're, we're going to see China back away from that. Um, and I know you're working on other stories, uh, John, about that, uh, about China's place in the seafood reprocessing world. But one of the questions you asked that I thought was very interesting related to that, was about uh, reshoring and um, reshoring meaning bringing your processing uh, operations back locally. And I thought Morton Jensen had some really good thoughts on that uh, in terms of, of where that is heading. And he seemed to think full force that we're going to see more of that. And that will trickle into companies themselves, you know, having uh, companies having hybrid, um, uh, hybrid work situations. But what was your takeaway on on reshoring and how that might affect uh, trade flows?
1: Well, it's interesting you should say that because I'm just holding a copy of a, a book by uh, a gentleman we interviewed recently, Dennis Unkovich, who is a, a trade specialist. And one well, of the main themes of it is that the global supply supply chain is broken. And he says, for many reasons, the biggest casualty over the next five years will be China. Uh, some companies are already beginning the process of moving their supply chains out of China to other locations in Southeast Asia, India and the Americas. Um, and those US companies, he's talking from the US standpoint, are aggressively reacting to economic political pressures by reshoring their supply chains back to America, are poised to be the most successful in the long run. So it'll be interesting to see um, if that happens uh, in the seafood sector. Yeah, it, it will
0: be. And I think, um, you know, I, I just think that the, the shipping disruptions that we've seen, obviously, have made a lot of people think differently about their reliance on overseas processing, and and that goes beyond just China. Although China's been um, perhaps uh, you know the, the been been the one that's most um, that's been most uh, eye opening for the industry since it remains the uh, largest reprocessor of seafood. But there's other other countries as well. Vietnam, where there's processing operations by some major companies, they've seen uh, disruptions from COVID. Um, so it, it just seems to me that um, the, the, uh, the cargo availability, uh, the ESG pressures, all of these things seem to be pointing in the direction of companies – at least bringing some of their uh, processing activities uh, a little bit closer to home.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the problems, um, with all due respect to them, uh, smaller countries in in Asia, let's say uh, Vietnam and Indonesia, is, uh, from that sort of um, cargo shipping point of view, is that um, most long-haul routes pass through China. So that has been affected. They, 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 they're on the route. It's not like the, you'll go from... Uh, For example, Los Angeles to Indonesia direct, there will be stop off points on the way on China. And then, um, you know, vessels have been caught up in congestion at ports before they can move on to the next place, which is, you know, Vietnam or China or or wherever. So that's another thing playing into the mix. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's it's also interesting to think about how these disruptions affect uh, affect cargo, and I thought uh, Michael <laughs> Lieberman had some interesting thoughts on that. That um, you know, insurers are really asking for a lot more uh, reassurance from uh, from their clients about what they would do uh, if there are these emergencies. Meaning that you know, there's always containers that go overboard or Uh, refrigerated containers that that don't stay refrigerated long enough and and the product spoils. But um, he really seemed to think that that's, you know, while the rates might um, not be sky high, that um, insurance is going to be maybe more onerous than it's been in the past.
1: Yeah, I think he's saying, yeah, from the point of view of, uh, uh, when you say onerous, I think it's more about what the the company needs to do to uh, satisfy uh, the insurer or the underwriters that they're they are doing everything i mean he did mention uh, all kinds of events that can happen including as you said fires on board and uh, and other events i think mean, we've seen i can't remember which region of the world it is but we've seen today uh, a ship um, carrying a load of uh, supercars lamborghinis and porsches on fire without a crew so um it's just kind of illustrates uh, the kind of events that, that can uh, that can happen that can push up rates right
0: now i know you're going to be covering this next week john but um just just uh, giving the podcast listeners a little sneak peek um you know what was sort of your takeaway of of what things are going to look like in uh in say the next two years for the seafood industry i mean I, my my view uh from from hearing your panel was that it's not like we're going to see rates crash back to where they were before this is not a um this is not a blip um it's it's a larger transformational change
1: yeah well, that's certainly what the uh, the shipping sector is uh, hoping for because for 10 years or so before the pandemic they were suffering from really low rates, and of course they've had bumper financial figures uh, in the last uh, two years, so in, in particularly in, in the last year. So um, you know they're they're kind of uh, not not pleading, but they're asking. You know, when things return to normal, whether uh, you know this the, not just the seafood industry, but anybody who um, uh, trans you know ships cargo around the world to, you know to work with them on prices and not go back to the the very low numbers that were hurting them uh, in the, in the first place.
0: Yeah, there, there did seem to be a a kind of a, an attempt to reach across the aisle by by both sides on the the seafood shipping side and the <laughs> and the Klein side. But uh, you know they were on camera, so who knows? Soon as soon as the the panel was over, I'm sure they went back to their desks and started you know um, drawing some hard lines on those rates. But um, but at any at any rate, I you know I think that um what, what was raised uh, by Tua Barford and, uh, and all the panelists, really, um, that, that, as you said, is kind of a, a, a structural shift is going to be ESG and sustainability. And uh, there is no way for shipping lines to change fuels and for, um, for the industry to go through these radical uh, changes toward a more uh, toward a more um uh, uh, toward a more sustainable uh, lower carbon footprint um production without there being some additional costs along the value chain at least at some point. So um, fascinating stuff, fascinating time. Um, thanks, John. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, quickly plug uh John uh John's new newsletter. Uh, we will be launching that in a couple of weeks. It's called Supply Lines. John, as I said, is our lead reporter on supply chains and logistics. And given the demand for uh, news and insight on that, uh, we have decided to launch a weekly newsletter. You can go right into our site and sign up for it. And then any of John's coverage, particularly on this uh, series coming up, you'll see right in there that you can click and sign up and hear from John each week on how to stay on top of this crazy, crazy climate of shipping. All right, well, let's move on to another part of the uh, logistics and uh, supply chain, and that is on the labor side. So inflation obviously uh, hitting everything. We talked about this last week on the podcast, and we're writing uh, a lot about it, of course, all the time. But this week uh, in particular, we had some coverage of it that um, that was really telling and should really um, it, it should really be raising a red flag for for the industry and how they approach uh, how they approach processing. So, Rachel, your story uh, uh, that came out earlier about the labor crisis uh, in um, that, that's uh, heading towards Alaska seafood processors really got a lot of attention, um, and really uh, I think have has a lot of people um, concerned about what the upcoming season looks like in uh, for Alaska salmon in particular, but also during the pollock season. So tell us what you what you found out.
2: Yeah, just kind of found out that this year in particular, um, the, the seafood processors for the uh, summer salmon processing season are really facing a labor crisis like they haven't before. Um, they kind of in previous years have had issues finding workers to show up, but this year in particular, um, there's both a lack of domestic and foreign workers, um, particularly when it comes to workers that need to use the H-2B non-agricultural visas. Um, I spoke with quite a few executives um, from Peter Pan um, and also um, speaking with Summit Trident um, that were just kind of mentioning uh, the issues with the H-2B visas that uh, the only issue about, I think it's about 60,000 of them each year. And and right now um, they are already, they've issued all the visas (laughs) they can. And and companies like Peter Pan are not even able to hire any foreign workers. Um, And those H2B non-resident workers generally make up around 40% of Peter Pan's 2,000 person workforce um, to run its processing facilities in Alaska. Uh, Just to give you an, uh, an example of how difficult it might be for them this summer um i've also kind of heard somewhat off record that even the alaska pollock processing uh season is getting hit a little bit by this and that we actually have uh executives that are having to fly out from seattle and go work the floors on the processor floors just because they can't find enough people to work currently um so it's a real crisis um that's happening and um i'm just trying to find another number from the story um Yes, I spoke with one person. Um, he is, his name is Brian Gannon. He's the Senior Director of Alaska Programs of Legislative Affairs for United Work and Travel. Um, they're a group that places H2B visa workers in seasonal jobs like all around the, the country, not just in Alaska. But he said that right now um, there's about, um, there's been more than 120,000 visas re- requested for this year alone. And that is you know, far exceeding the 33,000 that are available. So just to kind of give you an example of how many more visas we need than what is currently available. Um, and for, and I guess as part of that, what the companies are doing is they're really offering uh, much higher wa- wages than in previous years. Um, this year they offered, um, as their kind of minimum base prevailing wage, 1585, um, which is a big leap from the $12.36 12, $12. 36 they offered last year. Uh, but on top of that, companies are also really trying to attract these workers. So, you know, some are paying as much as, um, you know, $24 uh, per hour overtime. <laughs> so it's really uh, companies are fighting for these uh, very few available domestic and foreign work- workforce.
0: Yeah, you know, you you uh did some great online research too and uh embedded into that story which is uh which is on our site for any readers that want to go take a look. You embedded some social media links in there and what I found pretty interesting is it seems like at least Alaska processors have uh really put some big resources into social media unlike unlike ever before. And so uh, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, uh, everywhere, since I'm always searching about seafood, I'm gonna, these things are going to come up in my feed. Um, but you see a lot of ads that are very clearly targeted toward uh, younger college kids and trying to sort of hit a tone. I don't know if it's working to, uh, to see if they can get um, you know, so, some, some workers interested in it.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's a lot of posts on LinkedIn, and I've seen a couple on Facebook, too, that are like, make money and have the time of your life. And they're trying to show, you know, the the beautiful uh, Alaska locations where you're seeing, you know, these uh, mountains and sweeping views of, of uh, the Bering Sea. And so they're really trying to attract uh, people this year, yeah, any way they can. I think uh, I was even looking at some videos that were very impressive from uh, Silver Bay uh, that were you know, uh, explaining we have the fish, like kind of reminded me of an Arby's commercial, but it was for hiring salmon uh, salmon processing workers.
0: No. Well, it's not. Um, they didn't get
2: back to me on if it was based on that. That was just my impression of watching it.
0: So, well, it, it's not false advertising. It's certainly beautiful up there where all these plants are located. The only problem is that you're you're going to be standing there uh, covered in fish guts probably for most of the time. But working what uh,
2: like twelve hours a day? It's <laughs> on it's the not, low end. <laughs> it
0: is not easy work. It's perfect work uh-huh. for a college kid for sure. Um, you know, but that's not uh, unfortunately, that's been the problem for years and years is getting residents, either Alaska residents or or um, just North America residents, um, full stop to to take these jobs. Um, and uh, and so it's it's the reliance has been so heavily on non-residents for, for decades, really, um, but but in particular, uh, it's been uh, even even more intense in the in the past couple of uh, couple of decades. And I don't know that it's going to change with just a social media campaign, but it does it does give me a sense that in this climate of um, of wage inflation and in the fierce competition for, for workers right now. That seafood companies are are going to have to to pick up their recruiting uh, tactics and think of new ways to go out and find workers um, because it it just based on the numbers that you just mentioned Rachel it just doesn't the math just doesn't work
2: yeah exactly um I think John Fiorello and I we were talking about this but um uh, that some uh processors are even looking at automation you know like if this is just gonna be. An annual thing, and it's getting worse and worse. How you have less people that actually have to work in the plant, um, so that's probably something that we'll look more into um, moving forward. Because that solution, honestly, even seems more likely than um, seafood processors potentially getting, you know, um, other types of visas. Uh, from what I've learned, that's a pretty political process, and uh, you have a lot of bigger industries that want those same visas. You know. Um, any ag- agricultural visa in the U.S. You're starting to go go against some uh, big lobbyists there, so I don't know how possible that would be.
0: Right, true. You're fighting against the the Tysons and the Canagras and you know the the mm. those and the Cargills, the big, big, big companies um, to get those workers, and that's probably not a fight that the seafood industry. Uh, is going to win uh, with with their lobbyists when it comes head to head. It's just not uh, not as important as some of those uh, some of those Midwest states um, and and the constituents there. It it the, the story is is uh, it ties in great to what John Evans was just talking about too of you know the the move towards towards uh, reshoring towards bringing uh, processing back domestically in the u s there's a lot of domestic processing um, in in uh, Alaska, of course um, but the the challenge as you just mentioned is is this are the rising costs and if indeed companies start moving their processing back to uh, or away from countries like china and and other Southeast Asian countries, for example um then then that is going to to lead to a a whole new level of automation so as you said rachel we'll look more into that and i i think that's coming far far quicker than uh than the industry even even knows when you look outside of the the sector at some of the other uh other industries and what they're uh what they're doing either in the ag sector or other manufacturing sectors so In the meantime, I guess companies are just going to be scrambling quite a bit to find workers for the upcoming Alaska season and Alaska salmon season. And that's a really big problem, correct, because uh, of the the projected Bristol Bay sockeye salmon return, which is expected to be massive.
2: Yeah, it's going to be another record year for um, Bristol Bay this year. I'm just looking at what that... um... What that forecast is um, so Bristol Bay in general accounts for more than half of the world's sockeye harvest. Um, So it's a huge harvest every year. Um, And this year it actually is projecting up. Yeah. 75.27 million run of sockeye with um, around 60 million fish that um, could be harvested. And that is a harvest size that's 75% greater than uh, the ten-year average harvest, which is about 34 million, so it's it's a really big year for Sakai, Sakai uh, fishing, and and they'll probably encounter some of the issues they did last year. Um, you know where they did have to kind of, or maybe that was the year before where they had to limit days yeah. um, that people were fishing because the processors just couldn't catch up, and there is potential we could see that this year.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's going to be another interesting season, and then on on the other side of that we have. Uh, you know, it's expected that we'll have extremely high prices for sockeye and especially during the fresh season, uh, given the prices of farm salmon, which are right now, uh, sky high, some of the, the historical reaching historical records. So that tells you that salmon's going to be worth a lot. So it's going to be in the absolute interest of all these processors to get this fish processed as quickly as possible into the highest value formats, which are, um, Fresh and chilled and frozen fillets into the domestic market. So, well, thanks, Rachel. We'll we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us again. Please go to uh, intrafish.com, click on the menu, go to our newsletter sections, and sign up for uh, John Evans uh, Supply Lines newsletter, where he will be talking about issues like this: uh, shipping, logistics, cold storage, labor. It is uh, one of the primary drivers of cost for the industry, and we recognize that it's a major concern. And we've heard so much about, I heard so much from our audience that they would like more, uh, more on this, and and, uh, for us to illuminate this more. So we're excited about that newsletter, and as well, we will be in Boston. It's less than a month away. Uh, which is hard to even imagine. It's going to be the first time in two years at least since most of us have been on the road um, to any trade shows, anyway. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We will have our event there on March 14th. Uh, we will have our leadership breakfast. So we've already got some great speakers lined up, and uh, and we'll have uh, we'll have uh, uh, a nice socially distant uh, vaccination required event Um, and then Boston should be um, interesting it should be interesting so we'll be reporting from the show floor John Fiorillo and I and you can swing by our booth and say hello or if you have anything that you want to talk about tips ideas thoughts uh, of course drop us a line editorial at intrafish.com or ping us on one of our social media channels thanks everyone for joining us and we'll talk to you next week